0: Welcome to the American Democracy Lab. I'm your host, Alan Lambert. In today's episode, we have a really interesting conversation about the American presidency with two great colleagues here at Washington University, Peter Castor and Steve Fazzari. One of the great things about this episode is that Peter and Steve are both experts on the presidency, but they come at this topic with really different views. We begin by focusing on Donald Trump and Joe Biden, but later on, we consider some larger issues, all centering around what types of general expectations we have about the role of the American presidency. So back in 2017, I had the pleasure of hearing Steve and Peter speak at a symposium on the rise and eventual election of Donald Trump. Steve considered the economic challenges faced by the Trump administration and how well the new president seemed prepared to meet those challenges. So today, he's going to reflect on how that turned out. So Steve, one of the major themes of your talk four years ago was about Trump's diagnosis of the economic problems faced by the American middle class and how well he was prepared to deal with those problems. So how about you summarize your views from four years ago? Let us know how well you did in your predictions. Home run, something we're going to miss or something in between?
1: Well, Alan, I'd say I hit a triple and I would be standing on third base with nobody out. So uh, so pretty good outcome, but not quite a home run. I did not believe that President Trump's policies would create a stronger economy than what we'd experienced in the last four or five years of the Obama administration. I did not believe we'd really see a revival in the economic situation, circumstances of the American middle class. Uh, Donald Trump campaigned on the claim that the recovery of from the 2008-2009 uh, so-called Great Recession during the Obama years was historically slow. And that compromised the economic welfare of much of the country, but particularly the situation of the middle class. And I would say that on the symptoms of this uh, situation, he, he was right. The recovery was weak, uh, especially out, outside of the top part of the income distribution. But Trump's diagnosis was, in my view, wrong. It was mostly focused on the way outsiders were somehow stealing American jobs and driving down wages. This explanation played pretty well politically to Americans who correctly felt their economic lives were not playing out as well as they had expected. But this wasn't the main story, in my view. Uh, The Trump diagnosis missed the fact that after the Great Recession of 2008-2009, the economy lost the middle class borrowing, uh, in particular borrowing against their homes that was fueling the economy in the early 2000s. So if you look back at the economic results over the over the Trump uh, period, they really weren't all that good. He promised a big acceleration in growth, and I, and I agree that's what we needed, but it never really happened. If you look at the data uh, and look at the uh, growth of the economy under Trump before the COVID crisis hit, so to the fourth quarter of 2019 our broadest measure of economic welfare, that's real per capita GDP, the amount of output and income we're generating per person in the economy, grew at about 1.8% at an annual rate. In the same period of the Obama administration, at the end of his term, it grew 1.7%. So the numbers were almost identical. No real change under under Trump. If you look at job growth statistics, it's pretty much the same. The trend of the late Obama administration carries over to the uh, time of Trump. Before the COVID crisis, the unemployment rate did get quite low. And in some ways, that's the best statistic for the Trump economic management period. But we were really on the same trend as we were in the Obama years, So it just continued at more or less the same rate through the Trump administration. So really, basically, nothing happened to the big economic trends. Furthermore, somewhat as anticipated by a number of us, Trump made a mess out of international trade relations. He pursued awful immigration policies that were both inhumane and in the long-term hurtful to economic growth. The low unemployment rate was good, probably better than I would have expected. So my predictions were not quite a home run, but the trend established before Trump took office really just continued. He he didn't do anything uh, to really help Americans who correctly felt they were being left behind economically.
0: Yeah, interesting. Um, just one follow-up and fairly general question. So for those of us who are not economists, sometimes I think we get the feeling that you know presidents come and go and that the economy is just going to do its thing. It's going to go up, it's going to go down. Um, same with the market. Um, so to what extent do you think that's really true? Do you, Do you think different presidents really have a profound effect on the economy, or is it more, would you characterize that more as they can have an effect, but then most of the variants accounted for are just uh, cyclical market trends, which operate relatively independently of presidential policy?
1: I think the answer is someplace in between. Presidents get both more credit for good economies than they deserve and more blame for bad economies than they deserve (laughs) in that sense. However, policy matters, especially in a crisis. One thing that I think is important to recognize, though, is a lot of uh, policies take a while to, to actually play out. So the idea that somehow a, a new policy regime will shift things around in just a, a month or two is, is misleading. And, and even over a, a four-year term, some of the longer-term policies might not have fully played out. So it's difficult to uh, coordinate or, or uh, link up uh president's policies with uh, the actual results. That takes long-term economic research and politics just isn't patient enough to uh, wait for those results to really play out. So uh, Donald Trump is, in in some ways, wildly
0: atypical. He is our um, only president who has zero, who had zero political experience. He was a businessman and the conservatives that I talked to suggested that he was a businessman by training and that he did a great job um, handling the business ends of things uh, because of his prior background. Would you say that's being overly kind to Trump or would you say that he he promised more than he could deliver?
1: I certainly think he promised more than he could deliver. And the idea that somehow his business experience led to better economic management seems to me to be uh, pretty clearly wrong. That Business expertise and running economic policy are very different kinds of things. It seemed that Donald Trump did run economics more or less from his gut, based on his past experience. I think a lot of the uh, animosity toward international trade probably came from his business experience, but was uh, very much at odds with mainstream economic thinking and uh, wasn't handled very well at all. So this idea that somehow what we need in a president or any political leader is great business experience i think is uh fundamentally misleading well steve you have set us
0: up perfectly for um moving on to uh, peter and sort of keeping with our focus on the trump presidency so peter let's begin with the first question is i was reviewing the video from four years ago and you offered some insights as to whether trump was truly going to be a uh, norm-busting president or not Um, so walk us through a little bit on your thinking back then and then uh, compare it to how this actually played out over the um, four years of his term.
2: Sure, I I was reviewing my notes from four years ago as well, and it was fun to do. And when I was trying to make sense of the Trump presidency at its beginning, I emphasized continuity, and in three different ways. One was short-term, then intermediate and long-term. In the short term, it struck me that Trump was only the latest in a series of recent presidents, who all sought to combine the presentation of an authentic, unmediated self that was transmitted through the use of electronic media and that made him quite similar to his immediate predecessors but just in a really amped up way. And I saw another important continuity in the intermediate term. And this was, really gets to uh, Steve's point where I completely agree with him that Trump was trying to demonstrate the proof of concept for an idea that had been kicking around for over a century that wealthy professionals from the business community would be the most effective presidents, that first of all, they would have business expertise, but also crucially that their own personal wealth would make them uncorruptible, that they would be above politics. Meanwhile, the knowledge they had didn't just mean they could manage the economy, but it also meant they could manage any government organization because they were you know, conceive themselves to be good managers. And then there's a long haul way of thinking about Donald Trump. Some content, really striking continuities I saw that run all the way back to the origins of the presidency. First of all, the notion that the presidency and the president himself must be infused with energy. And this was language I saw Trump using all the time. Uh, also, that Trump secured his bid for office, his nomination in his election, at the conclusion of a two centuries long process that shaped how parties selected their nominees, how Americans chose their presidents, one that was in fact increasingly democratic, one that transferred power from political leaders and put it more in the hands of individual voters. And in the end, both the celebration and the fear of Trump that was really radiating in 2016, 2017, was rooted in deep fears, about the relationship between charisma and dictatorship. And these are fears that are as old as the Republic. And we've seen them in every presidential election. That's what I saw coming in 2017. And, you know, to use Steve's uh, baseball metaphor, I, I wouldn't necessarily say I hit a triple. Uh, I definitely wouldn't say that. What I would say is I, there are ways in which I think I saw. Um, what would happen over the first six innings. But as we all know, uh, baseball games are often determined in the seventh, eighth, and ninth innings. So there was a lot I really couldn't see coming.
0: Interesting. Um, So what would you say um, over the course of the four years of uh, Trump's term – did he start out being more conventional and then get less so uh, as
2: time went on? Or did you see any shifts along those lines? You know, I actually saw the reverse. When I think of the presidency in its long haul and the presidency as both a political and a cultural institution, I really saw Donald Trump at the start as a very intense version of some long-standing themes. So just to give a few quick examples, a lot of people in 2017 observed Donald Trump's communication style and said, this is unprecedented. But one thing I would emphasize is the notion that a candidate and then a president would use the current communication technology to make an end run around other political institutions and would do this in a way that emphasized a kind of personal connection with American citizens was hardly new. People often talk about FDR as being Franklin Roosevelt as being the first president to do that through the radio, but Ronald Reagan did it very effectively through television. And actually I would argue that Barack Obama was kind of the flip side of Donald Trump. He was the first presidential candidate to really understand how you could use social media to win out over more established candidates. He could hold a large public audience in the palm of his hand. The content of his message, And the mode of his communication was very, of course, very different from Donald Trump's. And yet both of them were candidates who had capitalized on social media, on large public gatherings, on new technologies and new methods to make an end run around their existing party establishments. So I saw that as a real continuity. Uh, Another thing that, again, that Trump stuck with throughout his presidency was the notion that his business expertise would make him an effective leader. Uh, Ross Perot had made the same claim. In some ways, uh, you know, Teddy Roosevelt thought that business could be a root of corruption, but that business management style could be a mode of uh, progressive reform. And then finally, this point I made about energy. I mean, look no further than Donald Trump and his claims to personal health. So during the 2016 election, he made this claim that Hillary Clinton lacked, quote, the stamina to be president and his doctor produced that bizarre letter that we now know Trump dictated himself, stating that Donald Trump would be the healthiest president in US history. And then when Trump himself contracted COVID, he tried to use that moment as a way to proclaim his nearly supernatural physical strength. And again, these have been themes of the presidency. Trump simply did it in ways that were more amped up, at times more outlandish, and at times more destructive than other presidents. But to me, that made the continuities all the more striking. So
0: among Trump supporters, and there are many um, in neighborhood of, say, uh, 70 million, one of the things that they say they liked about Trump and still like about him is that he tells it like it is. And then interestingly enough, the people who don't like Trump uh, are likely to say um, the exact opposite, that he was a liar, he, he just wasn't honest with the uh, American public. So what would be, uh, maybe you could take both sides of that perspective uh, when conservatives say, you know, Trump, let Trump be Trump. He just, he likes to call it as it is. Would you say that that's um, uh, looking a little through rose colored glasses, or would you say that's a fair assessment of one of Trump's strengths?
2: I think you described it so well, because when you talked about the two ways people understood him, because a lot of other presidents have been understood by the American public in exactly the same way. Let's start with George W. Bush. One of the explanations for his election and then his re-election was that Americans believed they could relate to him. It wasn't just that he was telling it like it is, but also that they had access to who this guy was. But think about how often critics said Bush lied, that he lied about himself in the election and then that he lied about the Iraq war, the reasons the war began, and then the, and then the outcome of the war in the years that followed. What I want to emphasize is there are all kinds of ways that Donald Trump broke with normative behavior of presidents. And calling upon American citizens to attack the Capitol building in his final days in office is merely the most extreme example of that. And we can list all of the ways in which he didn't behave like previous presidents, those differences are obvious but i think these continuities to me are more striking because he was inclined to do things differently so we've had
0: at least in certain certainly in terms of style we now have a pretty um dramatic contrast between donald trump and, and uh, biden looking backwards in the history of the American presidency, what other periods in history have we had that sort of contrast I'm not talking so much about the content of their policies so much that's obviously important but more stylistically um, how do you see this contrast in, in the con- larger context of the American presidency
2: right that's a that's a great question what we when we've seen dramatic shifts in personal style it's actually often been the reverse which is to go from a president who is muted, who is then displaced by one who is somehow more passionate and more engaging. In one way or another, Andrew Jackson did this after he displaced John Quincy Adams. Franklin Roosevelt did this after he displaced uh, Herbert Hoover. But there has not been a president who is so publicly passionate, who is so energized with the public as Donald Trump. We simply haven't had that. But to go to from one who is on that scale to one who is in some ways so as subdued as Joe Biden is very unusual. It's another way to think about this, that often when presidents come into office and they want to disrupt, the way they try to disrupt is to bring in new practices and new traditions of running the office. Joe Biden is very unusual in that he has come into office promising that he's going to restore, that he is going to restore practices that prior presidents had followed, that he would be more subdued, that he would be more constrained. And that's, uh, from a stylistic perspective, very unusual.
0: So, Steve, we're going to – maybe we can revisit this prediction (laughs) four years from now. But um, if you were to predict uh, how Joe Biden is going to um, handle economic policy, do you think he's going to continue to be explicit or just basically say, look, we're going back to the
1: way Obama de- did it? Well, let me pick up a little bit on what Peter just said. I, I think there is a, a big distinction between core economic leadership between uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden. As I said earlier, I think that Trump basically was running economic policy from from his gut or, or from his personal experience and, and really didn't have much use for economic expertise or more of a broader perspective on how things work. Again, an individual business is not the same thing as managing economic policy in a large, uh, interconnected global economy. So, uh, I think there there was a there will be a, a shift. I think Biden will go back to relying on economic expertise more. I don't know though that it will actually go back to pursuing exactly the same or very similar policies to the Obama administration because there has been a shift in economic thinking in some ways because of those results in the early part of the Obama administration where we were trying to come out of the Great Recession. The recovery was slow. There has been a shift more towards the idea of a more activist government uh, role to play in the economy, and you see that already in the early days of the Biden administration. Now, we're facing an unprecedented situation with the COVID-19 public health crisis spilling over to a massive economic problem. Uh, So that by itself is new and and, and needs a new approach, but you do see uh, very significant efforts by the Biden administration to go big. Uh, And it's supported by very mainstream people like his now Secretary of the Treasury, Uh, Janet Yellen, uh, Jerome Powell at the Fed, who was actually appointed by Trump, is actually uh, also supporting this. So uh, there is a shift here, but it's a shift that's based on people thinking hard about how to uh, deal with a modern economy in an unprecedented situation. And so in that sense, I feel more confident of steady leadership from
2: Biden, where you just didn't know what to expect from Donald Trump. Steve, I think you really hit the nail on the head, which is, one of the big changes which is often something we don't observe uh, is this role of expertise which biden has put at the center of his whole administration he said the way we're going to respond to the economic crisis is with the expertise of economists the way we're going to grapple with the pandemic is the expertise of physicians and that kind of language really is an abrupt shift from the trump administration in general or trump personally sidelined all of that sort of expertise and it's one that a lot of his advocates derided as being some form of set of elites who were trying to mandate to people what they should do. So the question is about how will
0: historians view Donald Trump when we remember presidents as being great or terrible or somewhere in between, how much is that dictated in part by how well the economy or the market did? Do human beings sort of think that way? They think, well, the the market, the economy went great, so he must have been um, a great
1: president. Uh, is it that simple, or is it more complicated? When we look back at the Trump period, uh, it's going to be there's going to be two pieces. One is going to say, "Oh, pretty much, pretty much business as usual. The economy was on this rather slow but steady recovery uh, in you know through the period before Trump took office. It continued." Uh, didn't really muck it up too much. Uh, there was a big tax cut. Didn't do didn't do a whole lot there. Uh, when we when we go back and look at it, and then COVID hits, and the uh, there is this incredible disruption in the economy. The, the decline in the economy in the in the spring was uh, was unprecedented, uh, and that basically there there was a good response there in terms of the CARES Act. Uh, trump's was largely on the sideline, that seemed to be run more by Congress. Uh, I think there'll be a lot of interesting analysis of how economic policy responded to uh, to this crisis. Uh, but I think what I think Trump was largely irrelevant from the point of view of the economic policy in the crisis and to the extent that the assessment is that the handling of the pandemic itself, the public health side of the crisis from from the Trump administration was uh, was much less than we could have hoped for and should have had uh, that clearly spills over to the economic side so I think history will judge that quite negatively in this sense but despite the claims about business the claims about uh, how terrible things were before he took office and the economy would take off like a rocket and and the greatest economy ever types of rhetoric that uh, that Trump was uh, regularly uh, putting out there, both uh, through traditional uh, media, but also social media and Twitter, uh, I, I think all of that will be, uh, will be discounted. Uh, there, there just was, was no evidence there. And, and this is that sense that, that Trump, in some ways, and the way he approaches things, is disconnected from the fact of reality. And I think that's going to be a difference between the Biden administration and most other administrations in terms of their economic policy. All politicians spin the economic data to their favor. But uh, but Trump was extreme in this way and, and uh, was basically ignoring the reality and just saying what, what he thought would be best for him polit- politically.
0: Great. So, Peter, what is what's your take on this? How will history remember Trump? And do you think these sorts of narratives about previous presidents
2: shift over time? The way Americans remember their presidents does change over time. And there are a lot of factors that shape it. It's how people personally remember, but also, of course, history books, movies, a whole host of forces shape how Americans think about their presidents. Some presidents remain pretty much the same. Some change over time. Uh, Harry Truman went from being a president who was remembered rather critically to one who was remembered rather favorably. Richard Nixon underwent a remarkable uh, recovery to some degree in the decades following his resignation. Uh, One of the really interesting things, though, is Uh, what we see from the research of your own colleague, Roddy Roediger, who looked at, along with colleagues, how Americans literally remember their presidents. He did these surveys. And one thing those studies observed is that most Americans moved most presidents toward the middle, that over time, presidents who they saw as great or terrible generally all moved closer to the middle, uh, partly as they didn't remember them as well, partly as they forgave presidents for what they had, for what Americans had previously seen as their mistakes. This is going to be the really interesting thing about Donald Trump, because there is no president in recent times who was as polarizing, not only in generating political polarization, but who generated reactions that were as polarized. So he, so Donald Trump in perhaps his next form of norm busting will bust the norm of uh, those surveys. Okay. So with that said, how are historians going to remember him? If you had asked people in 2018, if you'd asked historians then, they would have been highly critical of Donald Trump in a variety of ways. And I say that because one is that his actions were so out of alignment also with what most historians argue for great presidents, you know, great presidents, bring the country together. They were already writing the fact that Donald Trump was a highly divisive president and divisive on really bad subjects, on immigration, on race, you name it. So they were already arguing that he would be this you know, bad president. Um, but he then faced two monumental crises. One was the pandemic and its economic consequences. The other was the 2020 election, which he made a national crisis by refusing to accept the outcome of that election. So I believe that is what catapulted him into a space where historians could now say this might be one of the worst presidents of all time. Until 2018, there's another way to think about presidents who are the consequential presidents and who are not? There are some presidents who are moderately effective, but readily forgettable. From day one, Donald Trump was not a forgettable president. And he sealed the deal on that over the last year. Now, how the American public remembers Donald Trump, that's less predictable. I think it's clear how historians will remember him. One of the great unknowns is that 70 plus million people who voted for him, will they remember him? as a bad president, one of the worst presidents, one way I would think about it is, will there be Donald Trump middle schools 30 years from now? You know, what will the Donald Trump presidential library be? And what story will it tell? And I say that because both of these are very amusing things to think about. But those are the ways that in the long haul, Americans remember their presidents.
0: Yes, I'm glad you mentioned my colleague, uh, Roddy Rodiger, that you know a lot of this, uh, perhaps not so much for historians but for the American public, we know that that memory is is malleable. The people uh, construct narratives uh, which are not completely divorced from reality, but there's some um, a lot of subjectivity. And over time, you get this, as you mentioned, a sort of shift regression back to the mean. And I can't just um, can't help but mention that the biggest effects in memory are recency effects. And and Donald Trump, of course, a um, monumental event uh, towards the end of his presidency, of course, was the insurrection on the Capitol building. And um, that, of course, is going to have a huge impact, certainly uh, among many,
1: or perhaps not all Americans and how they remember Donald Trump. Let me jump in here uh, quickly, too. I I think that uh, I'm really moving more to Peter's territory here, but that a lot of the way we're going to think about Trump depends on what happens in the coming years. Does this phenomenon that was Trump and these ardent supporters end up fundamentally changing uh, the Republican Party, possibly splitting the Republican Party into the more traditional Republicans that we talked about earlier, or is this going to more or less die out and will we see a more uh, typical kind of pattern going forward uh, as Trump fades into the woodwork. I just don't think we know the answer to that yet.
0: So um, as moderator, I get to ask um, unfair questions. <laughs> or uh, So this is going to be a bit of we'll a Will this challenge. be on the final?
2: Will these questions uh, be on the final?
0: <laughs> probably. <laughs> um, but I'm an easy grader for you, Peter. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. Um, so if you were had uh, Joe Biden's ear, if you were sitting in the Oval Office and you had 10 minutes um, to give him his some advice as to what things out of Trump's playbook that Biden might want to use. So we can all think of examples of how he's going to go in different directions, but how do you think that Biden might be well, contemplating um, going with a Trump playbook?
1: Trump connected with a large part of uh, the American uh, population that feels left behind by the economy over the last decades. And so when we talk about the anti-elite reactions that fueled a lot of Trump's popularity, a lot of that comes from people's economic lives not playing out the way that they expected them to play out, I believe. And and there's justification for that. It's true. We've had this rising inequality, this stagnation in the middle class uh, that has been uh, with us for decades, and the the neoliberal playbook using the playbook metaphor once again, uh, of, uh, free trade, globalization, let markets work with maybe just a little control around the edge, uh, has not delivered the, uh, the promise that, that it might've seemed uh, possible, say back in the 1980s. And, uh, that's something that the democratic party, interestingly, was probably more connected to historically than the Republicans, but Trump flipped that. And, uh, Biden and the Democrats in general, I you know need to pay a lot of attention to it. And, and if the there is this uh, tendency to go back to the same old, same old uh, in terms of economic policy and uh, how we how we deal with the prosperity of the middle class, I, I think that's going to be a mistake. And and uh, Biden and the Democrats will be
2: well advised to keep
1: this in the in the front of their minds going forward.
2: One thing I would say that I, I wouldn't say it's a Page from the playbook he needs to borrow from, but it's a way, it's a page he can't ignore, which is Biden's got to figure out what his highly personalized communication mechanism is going to be. He simply is not as charismatic as Trump is. He can't generate those sparks, he's got to, he can't get up on a stage for two hours and rally a crowd. Uh, so he's got to find his own way to do it. Now, one way he's doing it to get to Steve's point and his attempt to connect with uh, Donald Trump's constituency is to say that unlike Donald Trump, he was born to modest means. He comes out of the Rust Belt with the, you know this, this whole Sc- Scranton connection is very, very important that he's announced, that he comes out of a certain kind of blue collar Rust Belt uh, tradition, and that that enables him to connect with the American public. And what's interesting is, so Trump kind of swaggered in with a certain kind of hyper masculine persona. Biden, it's really interesting, is trying to come in with a, with a deeply emotional way of connecting to people that's all about his family, his love, his caring. So that's a way in which he's borrowing from it. The other thing that he must recognize is that parties and social movements are completely different from what they were for most of his career. People have said that Joe Biden often pursued uh, bipartisanship. Well, Congress is less partisan now. Also, Joe Biden was elected and served in the Senate during a period when political parties were relatively strong. Well, it isn't just the Republicans that might be fractured. The Democrats are fractured as well. And one thing we've seen over the last two years is that there are now these remarkable forms of public mobilization. And we saw that last year, especially, and we still see it with Black Lives Matter, you know, that here was a truly remarkable grassroots movement in the streets that operated outside of political parties that its members said, we're not acting fast enough. Then we get Donald Trump's public in the streets movement. I don't, I don't want to say that, you know, these two movements are equivalent, because they're not. They're they're totally different in their goals and especially in their methods. Uh, And in many ways they are at odds. But my point is that Joe Biden's political career was primarily about political institutions. Well, now he is president in a world of political movements and and Donald Trump mobilized those. And so I, I wouldn't say that's a playbook that Joe Biden has to follow but it's a playbook he's stuck with and he's got to find some way to work with it. Interesting.
0: So any closing thoughts, Uh, Peter, let's begin with you.
2: Sure. Uh, First, my primary closing thought is that this conversation has been really interesting uh, in, in large part because one of the points I've been emphasizing is trying to understand Donald Trump and the Trump presidency within the institution of the presidency. And I think that, Throughout his time in office, it was, it was all about, the analysis was all about him. And I think it's really important to try to understand the last four years within a larger institution of a presidency. And when we do that, we can see that there are all of these real insignificant ways in which Donald Trump did change the office, not follow norms, but there are also a lot of ways in which he reveals longstanding continuities in the ways uh, things operate. And as I do in class, my goal is to try to avoid a partisan conversation about this, but rather to try to see how looking at partisans on both sides helps us better understand how uh, these arguments play out.
1: Yeah, Steve, um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that uh, Peter's given a, a very sensible overall uh, perspective. When I think about the economic dimensions of the Trump presidency, uh, I think it'll be again viewed as before COVID crisis. It was uh, it was pretty much continuing the trends from the past, and and all the hype about um, having a business person come in and and be the uh, leader of the country in this sense will turn out to be not not that big of a deal. And then there will be a lot of focus on what happened in the last year after COVID hit. But I do think there will be a, a legacy of recognizing uh, how concerns of the middle class, of, of people who felt left behind for, for decades prior to this time, and may, this may go on into the future, uh, have more significance and, and need to be paid more attention to. Uh, that uh, having a, a, a global economy run for the benefit of the top, uh, percent, one tenth of 1% uh, has political costs. And I expect to see changes in both the ways that Democrats and Republicans approach uh, these issues going forward. And and that may be a legacy of Trump that ultimately could be progressive in in a rather ironic way. Great. Well, I really appreciate um, Steve and Peter,
0: you taking the time to um, contribute to our very first podcast. And it looks like we're out of time for today, but for our upcoming shows, we'll be featuring uh, David Cunningham from Sociology and Betsy Sinclair from Political Science, uh, among others.